Now let's turn to Ephesians 5, and we'll read verses 22 to the end of the chapter. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we work our way through this passage, we've come to the second sermon on the calling of of Christian husbands. We've seen that in God's will for wives in this passage, uh, the emphasis is on submission uh, as the church submits to Christ. In God's will for husbands, the emphasis is on love. Love as Christ loved and loves the church. So we're still considering this broad theme. God calls husbands uh, to love their wives. And uh, this is a subject and uh, a sermon that uh, must be practical, right? Uh, it requires uh, explanation and uh, examples and applications of how uh, such love is actually shown. And when, when it comes to explanations and examples and applications, the possibilities are endless, right? Because you could describe all different kinds of circumstances and situations and, uh, give wise and biblical directions to husbands as to, as to how to respond or how to talk or how to act, and, uh, you know, 30 minutes could easily be filled with just examples and illustrations that are very, very practical. And I think it's our tendency to kind of have a, an appetite and a desire to hear those kinds of messages. And uh, there are big chapters in books on marriage that will give a lot of practical applications and specific examples and... Uh, you might uh, even say a lot of uh, rules or suggestions in terms of how to actually practice this. And I suppose people could take notes and then they could go to work on their their list of how to apply these things in their daily lives. And certainly such books and such seminars uh, can be helpful. In fact, uh, Christian husbands 
might well show Christ-like leadership uh, by reading through good books on the subject of marriage and perhaps with their wives. And if you're interested, I could recommend some very good books that certainly involves more than practical how-to applications but deals with these biblical principles. And uh, it's a broad subject that is worthy of of ongoing attention in the Christian life. But if all or, or most of this sermon uh, was filled with such practical how-to directions, uh, you could be actually left with little more than rules. Uh, you could be left with little more than law. That could put you to work, but perhaps without really getting to the heart of matters. And that certainly would be contrary uh, to this teaching before us. The main impact of this passage, and my main aim in it, is to move us with the wonder of Christ's grace and love to us, all of us, as members of his body, as the church, whom he loved and loves and gave himself for. And so also then in that connection to motivate husbands indeed to seek to become more like him in their love for their wives. As Christ loved the church, what an astounding model, what an ideal, what a lofty uh, aspiration to just make some progress in that direction. It is so amazing and so wonderful. But God calls husbands to follow that pattern and so love their wives. And uh, we're going to consider uh, three ways in which that is fleshed out here in this passage. No no pun intended. Uh, first of all, they're to love their wives as they love their own bodies. In verse 28, we read, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. We've already considered the nature of that love in terms of Christ's pattern of of giving, not giving simply some things or some attention or some care, but giving himself, an utterly unselfish kind of love that is purposeful, that is aimed at the good of his church, their salvation, our sanctification. But now the love of husbands for their wives becomes very, very concrete in this language. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Now, the first thing that we need to see, and if we don't see it, we're really going to miss what is really at the heart of this teaching here, is that this involves more than a comparison. In other words, it's not simply as if the Apostle Paul says, well, you love your own bodies. Of course you do. That's the natural instinct that we all have. We love our own bodies. We're very sensitive to our, our comforts. We look out for our, our own interests. And so love your wives like this. You love your own body and take that as the model for your love for your wife. Now, if that were the case, if, if that's all that were, uh, was taught here, it would really be no different, if at all, than the second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. It would simply be a way of saying, husbands, love your wives as yourself. And certainly that's true and that's important. But our text says far more than that. Listen again to the last part of verse 28, which says, He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, what does that really mean? He who loves his wife loves himself. That's more than loving your wife as yourself. Rather, 
The point is that in loving your wife, you are loving yourself. Because her body, it's, it's like a living extension of your own. Think back of uh, that first union between a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. And think how it originated in the formation of Eve from the very body of Adam. God put Adam into a deep sleep, and he took a rib, and from that rib he formed Eve of his own body. And we're given the response of Adam where he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And that's not simply just a wonderful instance of that, that first marriage and that, that, uh, original and unrepeatable description of the relationship between a husband and his wife. No, that is the paradigm for all those whom God joins together in a one flesh union. So when Paul says, love your wives as your own body, he's in effect saying, see your wife as part of your own body and love her in that way as your body. As if he is saying your body, her body is yours. Not in the sense that you own it, but that you are so one with her that her body is virtually of your flesh and of your bones. We are members of his body. We read in verse 30 of his flesh. And of his bones. So Paul brings uh, to our minds this one flesh union that husbands are to be very much aware of in the way they see their wives and the way they think of, of her and care for her and love her as, as a part of himself, so to speak. Now this must be believed and lived in faith. I think I mentioned this in a different context in the last two sermons uh, with respect to the ascension of Christ and the fact that we are to see our lives in relationship to uh, these great points of redemptive history that, uh, that uh, take place before we're born and, and reach beyond the point of our own death, at least in terms of passing from this life. It's those unseen things that are to shape our whole perspective and outlook. And indeed, a life of faith is a life of living, uh, not by sight, but by a kind of spiritual perception of the truth of invisible things so that they shape our way of thinking and living. That's what the life of faith is. But a life of faith not only concerns the perception of unseen things, but a life of faith has to do with the way we see things that are visible. The way we see actual flesh and blood realities in our own life. And we are to see them according to God's definition of them. We're to think of things that we see, but not according to the sight of this world, but according to things that would never enter into the minds of unbelievers. And that means that husbands are to see their wives and to think of them by a kind of faith that recognizes that God determines the reality that is to influence their way of treating them and thinking about them as though belonging to their own flesh, as being so united to themselves that they love their wives as their own body. 
Not simply as a comparison to the way they love their body, but to love their wives as their own body. You see how profound that is? Compare it to the way God's Word defines the church as the body of Christ. And that means that as members of the church, as members of the body, we are members of one another. And we are to think that way, we are to see that by faith in a way that is just totally outside the boundaries or the perception of unbelievers and the way they think of others. We may not, we dare not say to other members of the of the church, I have no need of you. That's as if members of the actual physical body would treat other members of that same body with contempt and disregard and indifference as if the hand could say to the foot or to the eye, I have no need of you. We have no real meaningful connection. No, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one rejoices, all the members rejoice with it. Now that's a perspective of the church and that spiritual unity of the church as the body of Christ, united to Him and thus united to one another in a kind of spiritual bond that can only be perceived and lived by faith. So that we don't just judge according to what we see and what we feel and what we experience. If we were to do that, the realities by which this world operates, and we're talking here about the realities of real differences among members of the body, differences that run deep, personality differences, the reality of weakness, the reality of sin. If those are the things that determine our relationships, well, they would simply just wipe out this biblical definition of the relationship that we have with one another. For all practical purposes, it's impractical. It's irrelevant. I actually had a conversation uh, with a friend recently where I was talking about uh, about marriage and uh, the the high ideal that the Scripture holds before us in terms of marriage, the relationship between Christ and the church. And he says, yeah, I know. He says, but... Practically speaking, most marriages that I'm aware of are just disasters. And that was a very pessimistic kind of judgment. Maybe a reflection of what he had just been seeing and observing in his own uh, life experience. But we dare not say that about marriage. We have to live by faith. Otherwise, sight and our sense and our experiences would simply wipe out the, the biblical definitions for all practical purposes. And then we would say of one another, as members of the church, I have nothing in common with those people. I actually don't like them. In fact, I wonder if they are even Christians. Or they're such poor and weak Christians that I really, you know, don't want to have anything to do with them. Right? Those are the kinds of judgments that what? They justify rejection. So members of the body of Christ end up rejecting one another. As if they, they exercise this private little excommunication in their own relationship to others. And such a, a, a perspective of, of sense leads to separation, separation and rejection. And that can lead husbands and wives, if they simply operate in this way, can lead husbands to say, who, who is this creature that I'm married to? She is totally other. And when you are tempted to think like that, perhaps, 
you must say, no, no, no. I must not think of that way about her. She is my own body. There is a one flesh union which God has joined together. And I may not separate it in my attitude and my outlook and justify rejection and justify separation. If we do not see things by faith here in terms of these definitions, we won't live them. We won't live them. We won't live them as members of the body together as a church. We won't live them as members of one another in a one flesh union in marriage. It feels like I've been cut in half. I remember that statement. It was probably 34 years ago. I was in seminary um, visiting family in Michigan during a, a break. And uh, I visited an elderly man of the congregation whose wife had recently died. And I, I, I recall he was 89 or 90 or in his early 90s. I know he was very old. And uh, he, he was like a little child in his grief. And that's one thing he said. I feel like I've been cut in half, describing the sense of loss. Well, how do you explain that feeling and that sense? Well, that's the result of seeing his wife and knowing his wife for so long and in such a way that, that his love for her and his care for uh, her was inseparable from his care for himself, indistinguishable, so that her death made him feel that way. Well, that's a beautiful ideal, isn't it? It's a description of a one flesh union that this passage really is assuming in its teaching here about the relationships of husbands to their wives. Husbands, love your wives as your own body. Husbands, love your wives, secondly, with a nourishing, cherishing love. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Now, that assumes, you might say, a, a kind of uh, self-love. It just takes for granted that this comparison just immediately resonates with with us. It's a most natural thing. No one hates his own flesh. Verse 29a. Now, people may harm themselves. They may even, even uh, mutilate their own bodies. And often when that's the case, that's, a, that's an indication of some kind of imbalance, perhaps even some psychosis. It's certainly unnatural, isn't it? But even that is what? It's like self-love gone wrong. Self-love in the form of, of, of trying to escape emotional inward pain by inflicting outward pain. It's not a solution that the Lord gives. It's self-harm, but in a way, it's self-harm done in the name of self-love, right? To avoid pain. We are all utterly sensitive to our own comfort, to our own hunger, to our own cold, and we could go on and on. And that's how practical the husband's love for his wife must be. This passage describes it in two basic ways. Nourish and cherish. Nourish. Now, that's a word that really does refer to basic care, to feed. It's a word, the root word really means to feed. Husbands must indeed so provide for their wives. Husbands must care for the physical uh, nourishment of their of their wives. In fact, uh, in in First Timothy, we read that if if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Yes, the the assumption that that still, although in increasing diminished degree, 
still influences the way people think about marriage is that there's a kind of responsibility that husbands have to uh, to provide for their wives and their family. Now, sometimes that's impossible because of health reasons or other circumstances, either temporary or long-term. But even then, the husband ought to take responsibility and get over his pride and let his wife go to work, and he has to do what he can, right? But there's this recognition that husbands have a responsibility for the for the physical maintenance of of their wives and their families. But that's more than taking home a paycheck, isn't it? Actually, the same word that's uh, here translated uh, nourish is rendered in uh, verse 4 of chapter 6 with the word bring them up. You fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but, but bring them up. It's like nourish them out of this condition into that by the training and admonition of the Lord. And that indicates this, that this matter of nourishing, uh, the wife is purposeful. Even as the previous part of this passage describes the love of Christ for his church as purposeful to bring the church to progress in sanctification in spiritual growth. So the husband's love for his wife must be purposeful to bring her from one uh, state of uh, of life into the next in a progressive, positive way to care for her life in that comprehensive way. It's with a goal of growth. It's the with a goal of, of the development of her life. Not simply her physical well-being, but for the development of her entire life, her emotional life, her gifts, her productivity. And we could go on and on. And that's not just for a few years, as it is with children, right? That's responsibility of parents for their children for a few years to bring them up, and then they're brought up, and then they leave the home, and it's done with. To old age, I will carry you. That's what the Lord says about his beloved church. And sometimes this matter of, of nourishing wives takes the form that some of you might have seen when the husband's visiting his wife in the nursing home in her old age and sitting across the table from her with a spoon and actually feeding her, caring for her yet. I've seen it in instances where husbands are actually doing nursing home kind of care for their wives. Christ-like kind of care, cleaning her, providing for her in that intimate and tender way. It's not limited to physical care that we're looking at here. The basic idea is also filled out by the other word that's used here, to cherish. And here again, there's a, a very simple idea at the root of this word. It basically means to keep warm, like, like a bird would keep uh, her fledglings warm by covering them uh, with her wings in the cold. And that's a, that's a tender kind of picture, isn't it? A picture of attentive care for the whole person, body and soul. And that certainly includes the emotional life of wives. And mistreatment or neglect of the body always does damage to the soul. And a cherishing love then never exploits. A cherishing love is never abusive. A cherishing love is never indifferent. 
A cherishing love does not put wives down with name-calling, with the aim to hurt. He who loves his wife loves his own body. You could also say, he who hates his wife hates his own body. What a monstrous thing. Positively, this cherishing love affirms, speaks well of, speaks kindly to, shows gratitude, gratitude for the things that she does, contentment with who she is and what she does, contentment with her looks, contentment with her love. A cherishing love delights in one's wife. Be ravished with her love, the proverb says. God calls the wife of Ezekiel, whom he was going to take away from him in death. He calls her the desire of his eyes. Isn't that a beautiful description? That ought to be an apt description of the husband's relationship to his wife. She's the desire of his eyes. It's not some glossy, airbrushed picture in a magazine. The desire of his eyes is not some poor, used and abused slave of the porn industry. But the desire of his his eyes is the wife of his youth. Cherishing love serves after the pattern of Christ. And that leads us finally to consider that pattern of Christ to whom we are united. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. That's how verse 29 uh, ends. No one nourishes and cher- uh, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Husbands are to nourish and cherish their own bodies, i.e. their wives, just as Christ nourishes and cherishes his own body, i.e. the church. John 13 really puts that on display for us, doesn't it? In this wondrous depiction of Christ's love, a love that takes the form of humble service. Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant very literally. In that upper room when there was no servant to wash the feet of the guest, and so Jesus girded himself and took a basin and poured water uh, into it and wrapped a towel around himself and went from one disciple to the next, washing their dirty feet. It was a humble service, very practical. It removed the filth and dirt from their feet. Eating together in that culture simply would not be right. It would just, you know, it's quite unthinkable that they would just go to their meal. Jesus provided that necessary practical service. It was purposeful, the love of Christ here. Not only in setting them an example that they are to practice in their love for one another in terms of humble service, but even in terms of the the parable that Jesus really is acting out in this instance. The chapter begins with notice of his full realization of his divine glory, having come from the Father and returning to the Father. And we're reminded of the divine glory of the Son of God, who, though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. He took upon himself the form of a servant so that he might wash us. A dirty business, you might say. Wash us from our guilt. Wash us by his own blood so that we might be clean before God, before he resumed his place in glory. So it's a parable of Christ's entire sacrificial mission of love for his church, a saving, sanctifying, and persevering love, having loved his own 
He loved them to the end. And so must the husband's love for his wife be persevering. This is Christ's love for his own. Having loved his own, it says. His own what? His own disciples? Well, yeah. His own, his own church. Certainly. His own people. Indeed. But our text this evening takes us deeper, doesn't it? He so loved his own bride. He so loved his own body. We are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. And he could not fail to love us or stop loving us any more than he could fail to love himself or stop loving himself. Why? Because he's selfish? No, but because we are inseparable from him and his saving, loving purpose to be joined with us as members of his body, whom he loves and cares for and will forever. Paul says, we, we are members of his body. And remember that this is the Apostle Paul. Uh, he's in prison, and uh, he is filled with wonder and amazement at the love of Christ for us. For him, he includes himself. An unmarried man, right? Who's giving this inspired counsel with respect to the, the, the beautiful ideals of Christian marriage. Who himself was not married. And again, that's why this passage involves far more, far more than directions uh, to husbands as to how they're lo- to love their wives. It's directions and teaching with respect to the wondrous love of Christ for us, his people, whether married or single, widowed or divorced, whatever our circumstances. We're taught here of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, the passage is greater than the duties of husbands. The passage is about the kind of amazing grace that should motivate us all to seek to be more like this Savior in loving one another as Christ loved the church. That may mean for you young men loving your future wives. It's time to start now. And one of the ways you have to do that is you have to avoid filling your minds with images and views of women that views them as objects to be exploited. People that feed on that kind of stuff, when they get married, they're going to carry it out in their relationship with their wives in a very detrimental and harmful way. So you got to start loving your future wife now. The way you think about women, or you think about possible future love. Amazing grace, transforming grace that speaks to us all as members of the church and of the body of Christ. Amen.